The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary and is made possible by the generous financial support of our listeners and friends. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff and I'm the host of the podcast here as well as Director of Advancement Admissions and a student in the Divinity Program. And I have with me in the studio another ZG, Zach Garris. Zach, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Zachary Garris is an attorney and author. He holds a Master of Divinity from Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi, and a Juris Doctor from Wayne State University Law School. He's written for Chronicles Magazine, the Mises Institute, and Desiring God, and he's the editor of Dabney on Fire, A Theology of Parenting Education, Feminism and Government, and most recently of Masculine Christianity, which we'll be discussing today. He writes at knowingscripture.com, a Bible resource website, and he manages teachdiligently.com, a Christian education website with resources for the home, the school, and the church. And it really is a delight to have him on because this new book, Masculine Christianity, to which I've merely dipped a toe uh, over the past couple months while I've been in the midst of my last semester here at Greenville, uh, this book is really a delight to read and a fine resource to the church. And so I'm thankful for your time, Zach, and joining me on the podcast. And I hope to encourage some of our listeners to pick up this book, to read it themselves, and to put it to use in the church. Zach, as, uh, as we consider this book, what motivated you to write it? Well, I think, you know, there's been a lot of literature on the subject of uh, biblical gender roles, men and women. Uh, but I felt like there was kind of a gap in uh, some of the books, uh, not as strong of a treatment on some issues that I was as much as I was hoping for. Things like feminism, uh, kind of the history of feminism. Uh, I would say also, you know, just a variety of interpretations uh, that I've disagreed with, you know, some complementarians on. So, uh, yeah, just I thought, uh, you know, this book would hopefully uh, be something that would be a little more uh, biblical in, in my view. So it's a response not merely to what you're calling feminism, and we'll define that in terms of how you explore in the book, but also a response to what you think is insufficiently biblical complementarianism as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Some people have talked about, you know, the differences even within complementarianism between, you know, narrow and broad complementarianism. And so uh, I would definitely fall on the on the broad uh, side of things. And so, you know, arguing for male rule, not only in the home and church, but also society at large. Got it. And we'll we'll dive into that more uh, toward the end of the interview as we work through these questions. Uh, Zach, who is the intended audience for this particular book? In one sense, I'm targeting, you know, all Christians who are, you know, interested in the subject, but uh, there are some technical aspects to the book. A couple of the chapters, I would say, uh, you know, on 1 Timothy 2, 1 Corinthians 14. And so in some ways, it might be more uh, pastors, theologians that might um, benefit from it more, but, but I try to make it, uh, you know, understandable and useful just for laymen as well. Now, one pressing question, just in thinking about the title of the book, and of course I want to dive into the substance as well. Where does masculine Christianity leave women? Can our sisters in the faith read this book and benefit from it? And can women live out a masculine Christianity? Does that make any sense? 
Yeah, I think women can absolutely benefit from the book. It's not just about men's roles, but also women's. And, uh, you know, the title, I use that uh, partly because it's catchy, but also, uh, <laughs> you know, connoting the idea uh, that may, men are supposed to lead in society, you know, in the home, in the church. And so in that sense, there's a, a masculine uh, emphasis to Christianity, but it doesn't mean there's not a feminine component as well, right? Women should be feminine, men should be masculine. Um, but even then, uh, you know, men have some exhibit, some feminine traits, some women, some uh, traits that are known as more masculine. So yeah, I think there is a, a masculine Christianity that women can partake in. How do you envision this book being used by the church? Do you, would you think that this is primarily or, or first and foremost or even solely a resource for pastors to use and study and then folks who are interested in the subject to read for further edification? Or could you envision this being used in a Sunday school setting, a small group, a book club? Um, yeah. How do you think it might be used and, and, and what, how would you advise somebody that wanted to roll this out in their church on a broad Way. I mean, the book's about 300 pages, so it's it's not short, uh, but it's also not, you know, really small text. And if you don't read all the footnotes, it, in, in one sense, it's not too terribly long. I, I think it's the kind of thing that could be used in a variety of settings. And I've heard some pastors say they'd like to use it, uh, you know, kind of guide a teaching series that they might want to do. So you could use it for that. Uh, I do have it set up for small groups. Uh, if you go to my website, knowingscripture.com, uh, the pop-up there, if you sign up, it should send you an email with a, uh, a study guide. And so it, it has a study guide for small groups. And so, I, you know, I think that is something that can foster some discussion that people might enjoy. And, and I appreciate that kind of setting the stage for understanding, you know, how this book might be used and, and what your purposes were in writing it and publishing it. And with that behind us, I think we can press on now into some of the more substantial questions that I have regarding the book and what you've done in it. My first question has to do with just the broad setting of the book. What would you say is the social or cultural situation into which your book is speaking? Well, in the first chapter of the book, I uh, get into this. And, and basically, in my view, our society is you know, extremely feminist. I think the feminist movement, uh, which I start with the first wave back in the mid-1800s, I think the feminist movements have been very successful. And a lot of Americans, including American Christians, adopt you know, feminist mindset on a lot of things kind of by default. And so... Um, we need to think through these things. We need to be, you know, corrected by scripture. And so, you know, that's one thing I try to do. I, I also think if you try to deal with the Bible's teachings on some of these things, gender roles and the like, you know, it can come across as very offensive to people. And part of that's just because of where our culture is. I think, uh, you know, fam feminism is, uh, you know, hostile towards Christianity and I guess vice versa. How would you define feminism or how do you define it in the book? It depends on the feminist uh, movement you're, you're referencing. Like the first, the, the yeah, I know they talk about three or four waves of feminism. And yeah. All. I mean the, the first wave, you know, obviously deals with uh, w women voting. And I think then in some sense there was a kind of undermining of male headship there, uh, at least an attempt to, uh, treat men and women as individuals instead of, uh, you know, as a family unit. It's really the triumph of individualism over 
kind of household family unit approach to civic life and um and that's expressed in this the rise of the individual woman out of the household into the voting booth exactly exactly and so i I argue that the first wave of feminism at least laid the seeds of the later movements uh most people think of second wave feminism as being the most damaging and that's probably true uh you know it's tied with the sexual revolution and everything um but I would define that aspect of feminism as basically driving women outside of the home and into careers, uh, you know, to act like men. And so, you know, one thing you see from that is women, you know, uh, marrying less or when they do get married, not having as many kids, uh, you know, working not just jobs, but careers, taking on careers, you know, similar to men. And so it really is just left uh, our culture, not valuing children as much, not valuing home life. And so that's something I really try to, uh, you know, take on in my book. Uh, you know, you and I, we're both in the Presbyterian church in America and, and we're dealing with, um, these kinds of issues, women's roles, as it's said in our courts. Uh, we've had a, a, we had a study committee report on, on um, what uh, women should be doing in the church and what they could be doing and what they shouldn't be <laughs> doing and and these things in terms of serving alongside of deacons and elders or participating in public worship leadership and, and these sorts of things and that was that was a couple of years ago and um, there's also however more recently been a lot more furor and and kind of dust up over effeminate men in our church, in the PCA, and particularly, you know, how to translate certain Greek words in in the New Testament that describe sodomites and homosexuals, um, malakoi and pederasty and and these kinds of things. But, you know, does this book, would that speak into that situation as well? Some of the ongoing problems with, let's say, revoice theology, as it's been said, side B gay Christianity, um, men who are acting like women uh, in a cultural sense or aesthetic sense. Does your book address some of that as well? Yeah, it does. Uh, Chapter two is titled Sexual Rebellion and Repentance, and I get into some of these issues. The book doesn't discuss homosexuality a lot, uh, though I do mention it, and I get into 1 Corinthians 6 some. And, you know, obviously I take the, the side that homosexual desire is sinful, and uh, but there, there's more there. It's not just homosexuality. There's also, uh, you know, you mentioned the word uh, malakoi, uh, which I think should be translated effeminates. And yep. whereas homosexuality might be the ultimate expression of that, uh, I, there are behaviors that are effeminate that I think are also sinful. And, you know, this is how some of the older writers like Calvin would describe this, uh, they would associate it even with, um, uh, indulgence and, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for as far as, uh, you know, life lifestyle, uh, luxury, you know, in, indulging in luxury and things like that. And so I get into that some, I, I would also just say effeminacy is not acting according to God's design for men. So if, if men are supposed to, you know, lead in the home and, um, provide for their families, protect their families, things like that. And if they don't do that, then they're not acting masculine. Uh, they're acting uh, effeminately. 
Yeah, and I think we can construe of that in terms of more broadly speaking, our consumer culture, men um, neglecting to work hard and to provide for their family by indulging, as in Calvin's terms, in luxuries, be they video games or spectator sports or gluttony and, and, and bad diet and lack of self-control or in, um, in what we might consider to be more traditional kind of effeminate pursuits, you know, the pursuit of of, of things that are pretty and bright and soft and whatever to the exclusion of pursuing the hard work of raising a family and, uh, and being in relationship with a woman as her head over the long haul. And, and that's, I think really it gets sadly and embarrassingly put on display even in the courts of the church, as men get up to speak and make emotional appeals and autobiographical appeals from the floor of a deliberative assembly that really is supposed to be about discussion, deliberation, argument. And you see this effeminacy break out. And I think most notably, um, I would say uh, Greg Johnson's display at the 47th General Assembly on the floor where he he wove this, you know, I guess it was supposed to be a moving autobiographical appeal from his own life in uh, in uh, in order to try to sway the assembly not to vote in favor of declaring the Nashville statement a biblically faithful declaration. And and I don't think that's a non sequitur to our discussion, primarily because what you're calling for is for men to be men and men to be Christian men and not men to shirk that duty and to shirk that uh, God-given impulse in favor of something that is really set against God's design for men in the church and in the home. And uh, you're right, the cultural pressures against us are uh, intimidating and very strong, but we shouldn't back down. You know, moving on from that, Zach, I, I've one of the interesting discussions in your book that I've noticed, even in my kind of skim reading cursory view, is this this discussion that Dr. Piper and I have had on Faith and Practice, uh, our interview segment, Q&A segment here on the podcast. And that is the question of what term do we use? Complementarianism? Patriarchy? Neither? Another one entirely? Uh, is one more biblical than the other? Uh, can you you know, really briefly, even if you want to draw from your book, you can, but even just off the cuff, can you define these, these terms for us and um, guide us through which one we should prefer, if either of them at all, and why? Complementarianism is a term that was coined in the 1980s, and this was supposed to define, in their view, uh, you know, biblical teaching on gender roles, so male leadership in the home and uh, also in the church. So only men can be elders or pastors, but they use this term, you know, complementarianism, the idea of men and women complementing each other, having complementary roles. And, you know, obviously they didn't want to use some more, uh, you know, controversial terms like patriarchy. They also aren't always a big fan of uh, hierarchy or things like that. So, I think there's a lot of problems with complementarianism though, is, you know, one, it's a clunky term. It's just big and, you know, people have trouble spelling it. And, uh, <laughs> and it's also, you know, a lot of people don't know what it means. Um, but there's also the problem that the egalitarians started using the word, they put it in the uh, subtitle to their, their discovering biblical equality book where they, I think they call it a complementary uh, without 
hierarchy or something like that. Yeah, complementarity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, uh, without yeah, hierarchy. Without so, hierarchy, so you have the egalitarians like using the term, and I think that's part of the problem is the word doesn't necessarily set itself uh, or set these views apart that much because even the egalitarians think men and women complement each other in some way, um, even if it's just like reproduction, you know. And so th- there is the challenge there with the term. Uh, I prefer the term patriarchy. Uh, in, in part because I think complementarianism did deviate from historic traditional uh, views in some ways, and we can get into that. So uh, there's that, but I also think patriarchy is just more of a apt term for this view, which is that you know there's father rule. You know, that's that's the, the the core terms there. And, you know, it's not even just male rule, it's father rule. So the idea of a, a father, you know, it's kind of a gentle term in some, some ways as well. And so, uh, of course, the problem there, some people think patriarchy, they hear that word and they associate it with abuse or, uh, you know, bad, bad. Like the pater familias of ancient Rome who had absolute rule and say over the lives of his household exactly members. so and, but that's not what you mean abusive forms of patriarchy and they do exist right i mean yeah. we're not yeah. arguing for a you know generic patriarchy we're arguing for a christian patriarchy and so i think that's that's the distinction there i want to re- revisit this uh, critique of complementarianism you say that you think that complementarianism as it's commonly been presented and articulated even argued for and defended falls short of the biblical standard uh for you know, the relationships between men and women in the home, the church society. Uh, open that up for me a little bit. Where do you see the shortcomings of complementarianism? Some of this stems just from the fact that complementarianism was a reaction against feminism. And so it it wasn't necessarily a fully orb biblical theology of men and women. It was trying to, you know, preserve these two truths. And they are truths, but they're very obvious truths, in my opinion, from scripture, which is that, you know, the husband's the head of the the household and uh, pastors and elders are supposed to be men, not women. And so it focused on those two things and that's good. So I don't, I don't want to just criticize complementarianism because I think there were a lot of good things about it. Yeah. But even early on, if you read a book like recovering biblical manhood and womanhood, which came out in, uh, I think 1991, if you read that book, you realize there's differing views even within these early uh, pastors and theologians in the movement. And so some of them would take a more uh, what they might call a Thomist view of uh, men and women viewing gender roles as grounded in nature and the different biological differences between men and women. Uh, but a lot of times that's absent from the arguments, and it's just more of a, uh, what might be termed a scotist view, which is just, well, God just says, you know, women can't be pastors. And I, I think that's often today associated with narrow complementarianism. Um, and so I think that's one big problem is, you know, if you don't emphasize the natural differences, and, you know, as far as God made men more aggressive uh, you know, even a deeper voice. I, I tie that with, you know, preaching and things like that, more authoritative um, nature. I think that's totally tied with his commands. And I think that's lost. Uh, there's also the fact that um, 
complementarianism does seem to be somewhat uncomfortable with terms like hierarchy or even sometimes authority and uh, even how that's played out maybe in the marriage relationship. And, and so you have a, you have different uh, takes on these things. And so it, it depends who you're talking about, but uh, that's one thing. I also think as a whole, and I, I think I've pretty much seen this with almost every person who would call themselves a complementarian is they take this uh, newer view of first Corinthians 14 verse 34 and 35 and they limit it to uh, where it, Paul, Paul says, let the women be silent in the churches. And they limit that to uh, evaluating prophecy. So they take the view that women can, at least if they're cessationists, they would say women could prophesy in the, in the apostolic church, uh, but they couldn't evaluate prophecy in the church. And so that's kind of a strange view to take, in my opinion. Yeah, and you have a chapter on that, and I want to I want to come back to that. I want to hear how you deal with that text because it is particularly thorny. And I have seen uh, complementarians, men whom I respect and and highly regard, uh, deal with that text in different ways. And so I'm I'm keenly interested in in unpacking for our listeners how you deal with it in the book. Um, but before we do, you mentioned this thing: the difference between a Thomist or Thomistic, and then a Scotist. Uh, approach to you know what God tells us is is right and good. Is it grounded in um, you know ontological reality, or is it grounded merely in His will for us as revealed in His Word? And there's been a lot of discussion and brouhaha about this. I mean, R. Scott Clark has has poo-pooed the whole appeal to ontological differences between men and women in this argument, kind of siding with um, up-and-coming uh, authors like Amy Bird, Rachel Green Miller, who have gone beyond poo-pooing it and have absolutely abominated it <laughs> in their books and in their social media presence and in their blogging. And I find that move be it by um, either a theological professor and man ordained in the ministry or, um, you know, a female interloper into the discussion online and published authors and members in good standing of the OPC or whatever, I find that move to be kind of illegitimate and, and actually inexplicable from, uh, from in a way because why deny ontological differences between men and women if those who would say that there are such a thing, and I think the two of us would, are are not saying that compromises the equal dignity and image-bearingness of, of men and women. You get what I'm saying. And so you discuss this in the book. Uh, walk us through the issue. How do you tackle it? And, and what would you say to naysayers like Scott Clark and Amy Bird and Rachel Green Miller on this particular issue? Yeah, I, I think this is a problem uh, we're seeing today. And part of it is just, I think, people denying the obvious, which is that men and women are not the same, right? And in some ways, they're not equal. I know that might upset some people, but we have to be careful with this term equality. And I do have some sections on this in the book. Men and women are equal in some ways. Like you said, we're equally made in the image of God, right? Male and female, he made them. Um, we have equal, equal dignity. dignity, but we're joint heirs in Christ. But but then yeah. you can't go to Galatians 3.28 
and then say, oh, well, men and women are the same, right? Egalitarians try to do that. Uh, so they, they use this term egalitarian, uh, equality loosely. But we need to be able to say in other ways, men and women are unequal. They're different. And that, that should be obvious. And uh, part of that is, you know, in our physical bodies. But it's not just the physical. It's our entire being, right? Being a man or being a woman affects your entire being, your mind, uh, your personality. Um, it's just it's just part of who we are. It goes it goes all the way deep in us. Where would you say Scripture bears this out most clearly? Well, I think you see it uh, certainly in the creation, you know, in Genesis two, just in the the differences between men and women. Uh, but it's 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 all over the place. I mean the the commands. Uh, and, and even just the, the way things play out in the old and new testaments, as far as, you know, male leadership, that's a reflection of this. It's not just that God said men are to lead. He does say that. Uh, but it's also the fact that that's how things work their, you know, work themselves out. Um, and so, um, when you look at creation though, I do think that's there as far as, you know, God put Adam in the garden to work and keep it, or as I argue, uh, the word can be translated guard. And so, you know, men have a protection uh, role. And then, of course, Eve is made from Adam's rib, uh, which, you know, is different than Adam being made from the ground. And so, you know, he, he works the ground, but uh, Eve is Adam's helper. And uh, so her work is in one sense directed toward him. But even the names, right? Uh, Adam, Adama, the ground. Uh, Eve is, you know, related to the, the Hebrew word for, for life giver. And so you, you have it in the names. You see it in the curse uh, in the fall, Genesis 3. You know, they're judged in their respective uh, areas of, of work uh, with the woman with childbearing yeah work and vocation exactly i think you know one of the if i if i understand amy bird in particular correctly uh what i've heard her argue for um in her book recovering from biblical manhood and womanhood for example is a a forsaking of this idea or emphasis perhaps is better way of putting it this emphasis on men being called to a biblical manhood and women being called to a biblical womanhood, and and actually a pivot, um, a very subtle pivot, but one that she makes a big stink about, of men and women as brothers and sisters in Christ pursuing a biblical Christ-likeness that is either divorced from or at least distinct from um, manhood and womanhood as such. But what you're doing in this book is completely different. I mean, you're you're going kind of beyond, um, you know, uh, the the recovering biblical manhood and womanhood to really asserting a masculine Christianity, and 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 you know, in some sense, lending your voice to the complementarians, calling for a biblical manhood and a biblical womanhood, but even you know, drilling down further and say, actually, there's a masculine cast to Christianity. As such, it's not merely equal parts, male and female, but rather it is predominantly masculine, which necessarily entails 
feminine uh, features, roles, contributions, um, but totally disallows effeminate uh, iterations or expressions and tendencies as well. That, that's one reason I really appreciate your book because you do so in a clear-headed way. You're, you're exegetical in how you do it, and uh, it really is pushing back at not just broader culture, but what I would say are accommodationist tendencies or really careless exegetical work that have eked into the church itself. And um, that's one reason I wanted to commend your book and have you on today is because I see a lot of value in in asserting this masculine Christianity idea. Yeah, and I hope people benefit from it. Uh, I, I think, you know, I you asked earlier why I wrote the book. I've read a lot of feminist uh, or egalitarian literature over the years, and I've gotten you know, kind of frustrated by it. And I, I don't think the, I don't think the other side, uh, you know, always answers them effectively. We, we don't, uh, I, I guess don't want to say everything that should be said. Some of it because it's too controversial. And I think we just need to say it and uh, we need to, you know, critique this word equality. I, I rarely see that everybody's obsessed with this word equality. They're afraid if you say something about hierarchy um, so you have that. And then, um, you know, I think dumbing down some of the, the scripture passages or e- even some that people won't touch. There's, there's some passages like Titus two. I, I noticed that, uh, a lot is Titus two talks about the older women training, the younger women. Uh, one of the things is to be, to submit to their husbands, but to be working at home and, you know, complementarians seem to shy away from this, partly because it might upset some people in our own circles uh, as far as gender roles and and uh, what I like to call duties. It's not just roles, but duties that God has placed on men and women. And I think it's privileges as well. Um, there's nothing more freeing than living fully in the revealed will of God and living according to those vocations, which he's clearly outlined to us, not just in our feelings themselves and our sentiments, which can often fool us and trick us, um, though they are of good use when ordered properly, but you know, his vocation is most clearly presented to us in his word. And, and uh, attending the vocation, like the Titus 2 passage, the vocation of women, is also warnings and, and admonishments and exhortations and encouragements I mean, one of the passages that I think gets overlooked quite a bit in these discussions, if not trampled upon, is 1 Timothy chapter 2. I'll start at verse 11. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet, for it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. So Paul grounds this in ontological differences between Adam and Eve, at least in terms of priority of creation, and I think perhaps more than that. And then verse 14, And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. And so Paul goes on, not just in creation, but through the biblical narrative into the fall for um, supporting his, his argument you know, another passage we talked about was 1 Corinthians 14, 34 to 35. I want to hear you break this down for us because you say complementarians tend to skirt around the issue. And here it is. The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. 
If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. And then verse 36, was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? What is going on in this passage, Zach? Yeah, this is uh, even more controversial than 1 Timothy 2. So most complementarians are going to camp out on 1 Timothy 2 and, and say that Paul is prohibiting you know, women from teaching or exercising authority over a man. Uh, so they, there's different applications, but, you know, the complementarian position at minimum should be that, you know, women can't be pastors. Uh, they can't uh, exercise that, those roles. But here, uh, I actually think this is a parallel passage from first Timothy two. And that was, uh, what was held by a lot of uh, older theologians. You see it with Calvin in his commentary on first Corinthians here. And you see a lot of similarities, uh, just some of the words, uh, the women should keep silent. Um, they're not permitted, you know, just in, as in first Timothy, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority. Uh, they should be in submission. And then he also appeals to the law just as uh, it might be appealed to creation. It's not really clear. Uh, but Paul in First Timothy two appeals to creation, and then um, yeah, there, there's several parallels I get into in the book there, and so I, I think these aren't talking about the same thing. Um, and you know, obviously, this is more offensive in some ways because Paul is saying, you know, let the women keep silent. Uh, I don't think he's saying women can't sing. I don't think he means they can't say anything, but I think he's speaking in the context of uh, public worship. So anybody that would be up front teaching or uh, reading scripture, or leading prayer or anything like that. And of course, if you remove this passage, it's not a surprise. Then people have started to change practices. So, you know, a lot of even reformed churches are having women read scripture or lead prayers up front, things like that. If you were to read this on, you know, first reading, I think it seems pretty clear and uh, it may be offensive to you know a lot of people in our culture, but it doesn't seem unclear. The reason people say it's not prohibiting women from speaking publicly in church, the reason they qualify it is they go to 1 Corinthians 11, verse 5. And uh, Paul says there, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. And so it mentions women praying or prophesying. And so this appears to be a potential uh, contradiction. And the older theologians were all, of course, aware of this. Uh, there were different ways of handling it. Uh, they would either argue that um, this was in a different context, so either a private or semi-private uh, context, worship context. And that's, that's I think... Uh, the view I, I take and defend in the book. But there's also the possibility that Paul is delaying condemnation. He's referring to something some women are doing. They might be praying in some of the churches or prophesying, leading them. Uh, but he waits until chapter 14 to condemn it. And so Calvin actually kind of has a comment, uh, suggests both possibilities. But what's interesting to note is, you know, Every theologian I've seen that's commented on the passage uh, prior to 1962 has taken one of those views. Uh, they 
took this as a more all-encompassing prohibition in First Corinthians 14. So whether it's origin in the early church or we mentioned Calvin or Dabney or Warfield has a whole uh, treatment of this. And, you know, their argument is, look, First Corinthians 14 is clear. It's not so clear what's going on in 11.5. And what you've seen today with complementarians, and this really goes back to Don Carson's chapter in uh, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, he basically interprets 1 Corinthians 14 through 11.5. And uh, so they end up arguing that Paul is only uh, limiting prophecy, prohibiting women from weighing prophecy or weighing or evaluating prophecy. And I just, I read the passage a lot and can't see that, you know. <laughs> so, but that's, that's what they argue. And I, you know, I provide some more in-depth arguments against that in the book. Um, but yeah, I, I do think it's important to note that the earliest I've been able to find, and this is based on what other authors have said too, is you know 1962. That's the first time somebody takes that interpretation, and uh, but it's it's become the majority complementarian position since uh, that uh, D. A. Carson chapter. And let me add this because I think this is an interesting point. Is uh, and I get into this at the end of that chapter a lot of egalitarians are not satisfied with the complementarian position, the evaluation of prophecy uh, view. They, I think, like me, don't, don't see that in the text. And so there are two ways of dealing with it. The most common probably now is Philip Payne, and there's others, but he makes the argument that it's uh, interpolation. So it's not actually authentically Pauline and... Uh, was added later. I don't think there's good reason to conclude that, even though it does, uh, there are some manuscripts where it moves the text. But there's no manuscripts where it doesn't exist. And uh, so there's some treatments of that. Uh, you have some other egalitarian theologians who have argued for um, a different view that this is Paul quoting the Corinthians said he's quoting them. This, this was something they wrote that, you know, the women should keep signing the churches. And then he's responding to it in verse 36, or was it from you that the word of God came? And uh, I, I deal with it in, in the book. Uh, some of that can get a little technical as to why I don't think that's a good, good argument. Um, but yeah, so that those are the routes they go. So I find that interesting that I, I, I think sometimes, you know, egalitarians, especially critical like feminists, they can be a little more uh, honest with the text. And uh, <laughs> I don't think they're buying the uh, evaluation of prophecy view. Zach, I, I would say that chapter in and of itself, because of the research you did, because of how you carefully distilled it and presented it for your, for your readers is worth the price of the book. And the price of the book isn't all that much anyway. And so it, I would, I would commend the book to folks just on that basis alone. Uh, my next question is, it really deals with the next few chapters of the book. Um, you break down uh, patriarchy, male uh, headship, or male, you know, father rule in the home, the church, and society. And what direction does scripture give us for how men and women are to conduct themselves and to relate to each other in these three spheres, if I, if I can use that word? Um, what are some of the high points of what you find and argue in your book? Well, yeah, one, I mean, I start with the home in, in, in that section uh, that, you know, male leadership 
headship starts in the home. And so, you know, there's a lot of texts you can go to, um, you know, first or Ephesians five being kind of the classic text, but I also go to places like numbers 30. I go to the old Testament and, uh, I argue that, uh, you know, there's, a uh, fathers have authority over their unmarried daughters who are in their household. And that transfers to the, the husband when the woman gets married. So I, th- I think we should not forget about, you know, passages in the old Testament as well. Uh, form the foundation. But yeah, Ephesians 5, uh, you have 1 Peter 3, uh, Colossians 3, they all they all speak of submission for wives and uh, male headship. And so, you know, people argue over the Greek word, you know, kafale and all of that. And, and I think it does, you know, connote authority, but uh, the word submission's in there. There's no reason to avoid that. Uh, I don't know how egalitarians really get around it. I mean, I deal with their arguments here. I just don't think they're very good. I mean, they get into mutual submission and things like that. Uh, so that's the home. Uh, then I get into, you know, first Timothy two and first Corinthians 14, as far as male leadership in the church. Um, also first Timothy three, you know, I get into the issues as far as requirements for elders. Uh, I take the position that only men should hold the office of deacon. And so that's a controversial view, even within um, conservative reform circles. I have a whole podcast interview with your former professor and and our common friend, Dr. Guy Waters, on the issue of should women serve as deacons? Is is there biblical allowance for that? And um, that was a great interview with Dr. Waters, not because of me, but because he is so sharp and and just so clear and and so faithful to Scripture on that issue and. Um, if, you know, if any listeners are wanting to, to get a good half hour, 40 minute podcast conversation on that issue, I would commend to them my interview with Guy Prentice Waters on women deacons. It, it, it was a really delightful conversation. To yeah, have he's, him. he's great. And he, he, uh, uh, Dr. Waters gets into, uh, that I, I cited his book, uh, how Jesus runs the church. Yep. And so he, he has some arguments in there that are helpful. Uh, yeah, so that's, uh, church leadership. And then I, uh, I also decided to tackle the uh, most controversial of all, which is <laughs> male rule in society. So that was somewhat of a challenging chapter because there's not a lot of literature on this. Uh, you know, there's some older theologians, of course, John Calvin, John Knox, in their writings, they make some references to, um, to the subject. Um, you know, particularly women queens uh, in, in civil rule. So my basic argument is that society or, you know, the civil government is uh, made up of families. And therefore, if, you know, men are supposed to lead in their families then they should also lead over other families. And it's not appropriate for women to hold, uh, you know, civil authority in that uh, regard. So I argue that, um, I, I just, you know, even tied with nature, I think if you take the Thomist view, I just, I don't understand how you can end up arguing that it's good or ideal that a woman would be a president or governor or something like that. Um, I get into some more technical things. I argue with some of the egalitarians that raise some issues. A lot of complementarians are not willing to go here. I think one of the few I've seen is like John Piper, like he'll, he'll make comments about, you know, women shouldn't be uh, presidents or also police officers, you know, a, a lot of, uh, a lot of people here would say women shouldn't be combat uh, soldiers, uh, but I also would extrapolate from that. Then they, they also shouldn't you know serve in 
police or things that require force. Uh, that protection is a male uh, duty, and uh, it's not appropriate for women to to take on that uh, uh, task. In Scripture, when we read the account of um, of Barak and Deborah in Judges chapters four, yeah, five and six, yeah. four, four and five. Um, I mean, Deborah makes a point that it's shameful for Barak to like basically have her accompany him into battle. And it's shameful then that, that Jael ends up being the one to, to kill Sisera rather than Barak because Barak abdicated his, you know, his God given role as, as head of battle and, you know, expressed fear without Deborah's accompaniment into battle. And then in, you cite Isaiah chapter three, where Isaiah says, my people, infants are their oppressors and women rule over them. Oh, my people, your guides mislead you and they have swallowed up the course of your paths. And so, I mean, prophetic literature, didactic literature, um, legal literature, poetic literature in scripture, kind of with one voice in historical narrative, with one voice back up your argument here and what others have said, um, even though even though it's not without controversy in our current political climate. I just stumbled across this, this quotation from Calvin that you include from his commentaries on the epistles to Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. He says, I reply, there is no absurdity in the same person commanding and likewise obeying when viewed in different relations. But this does not apply to the case of women who by nature, that is by the ordinary law of God, is formed to obey. For gunaikokratia, the government of women, has always been regarded by all wise persons as a monstrous thing, and therefore, so to speak, it will be a mingling of heaven and earth if women usurp the right to teach. Accordingly, he bids them to be quiet, that is, keep within their own rank. And, uh, and you know, he goes, and, Cal- and Anak says, a woman promoted to sit in the seat of God, that is, to teach, to judge, or to reign above man, is monstrous in nature, uh, contumelious to God, I mean, basically not good to God and a thing most repugnant to his will and ordinance. I mean, these guys, it's not even that they're Thomistic or, um, or Scotist. It's, they're actually drawing on both God's created order, nature, and God's express will and his law and his statutes. Um, so this chapter, I know it was probably really difficult for you to dig into because there's not a lot of extant literature on it, and it's extremely controversial. Um, but this chapter is really helpful as well in terms of not shying away from some of the hard statements either in Scripture or in our Reformed uh, and Christian tradition. Yeah, and I hope people find it helpful, uh, partly just because it's unique. It gives a lot of uh, sources. Um, I also get into Deuteronomy 22.5, and I think that's... Uh, uh, helpful both, you know, in dealing with things like transgenderism, but I, I actually argue uh, that Paul, uh, Paul, the Deuteronomy specifically is prohibiting uh, women from wearing combat gear there, that that's actually dealing with soldiers. And I think there's a good argument for that. And so uh, other appeal to other passages in the Old Testament, just about God's, um, you know, the ideal as far as, you know, it was always men who carried out uh war and enacted as soldiers. And I think you can see that that even extended today where women are being pushed into, you know, a variety of things, whether it's as police officers or even uh, some sporting events like you know, you, you know, movies, you have women 
you know, are always presented as uh, superheroes. They're beating up the guys, you know, it doesn't really make sense, but um, you know, it's just like, it's become so common in our culture. And so I think it's good for us to discuss these things. And to push back against them. Absolutely. They're at odds with scripture. And I mean, that's not going to make me popular with the cool kids at the cool kids table right now. But I think that, um, you know, we can't shy away because we end up doing a disservice to our daughters, to our wives, to our sisters, um, when, and to ourselves, when we promote or stay silent, uh, in the face of lies. And, um, as one author put it recently, we are to live not by lies, but rather to live by the truth. And um, that's not a promotion per se of that book. I haven't read it yet, but um, it's, a, it's a great title. <laughs> and it's a good clarion call as well. I want to end on a positive note here, Zach. I mean, we've done a lot of kind of polemical conversation, pushing back, um, responding to, uh, seeking to tear down strongholds of false teaching, uh, be it from reformed feminists or otherwise, but you issue a call to men in the concluding chapter of your book, leaving a manly legacy. This is something I think about a lot. Um, As the director of advancement here at the seminary, it's something I talk to folks about on occasion, uh, particularly in the context of planned giving and estate planning. You know, what kind of legacy are they going to leave? Um, And but it's something I personally think about when I look at my five children around the dinner table, when I think about any other children the Lord might bless us with in the Groff household, when I think of their children and then, you know, their, their grandchildren uh, that'll, you know, come onto the scene after I pass away. And, and I think about what kind of legacy am I leaving? Am I leaving the legacy to which God has called me? What guidance do you give to men in terms of lead, leaving a godly, manly legacy? Well, I think you're exactly right. We have to uh, think about not just now, uh, not even just a few years down the road, but generations uh, into the future. And so uh, that's not going to lead us to focus on how much money we can make right now, uh, how many possessions we can store up on earth, um, but how many children we're going to have and what kind of children we're going to raise. And I think that's an important thing. And uh, as I would argue, we're not just raising children, we're raising them to be godly men and women. That's the goal. And I include a quote here from uh, Robert Louis Dabney, which I included a block quote just because I think it's great. I'll read part of it. Uh, he says, um, seeing the parental relation is what the scripture describes it and seeing Satan has perverted it since the fall for the diffusion and multiplication of depravity and eternal death. The education of children for God is the most important business done on earth. It is the one business for which the earth exists to it. All politics, all war, all literature, all money-making ought to be subordinated. And every parent especially ought to feel every hour of the day that next to making his own calling and election. Sure. This is the end for which he has kept alive by God. This is his task on earth. And the rest of it's good, but I won't read it. Um, and yeah, and so that's, that's the note I try to end on is, you know, following God's design for men and women should lead us to form godly families, uh, should lead to the men uh, providing for their families, uh, should lead to women having children and helping their, their husbands and raising children. And that's really what we should order uh, our lives around. 
And so that's the last chapter is a call to do that, um, looking to the future. And, you know, I think that's even part of, you know, when we look at our society, our culture and, you know, the dark direction, it seems to be turning. Uh, we're not just going to turn things around in the future through conversion of non-believers. That's part of it, but it's also through passing on the faith uh, to future generations. I think that's a great note to end on, Zach. I mean, that's in large measure central to the mission of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, of equipping preachers, pastors, and churchmen for Christ's kingdom among the nations, um, of our vision for our enduring Reformation. Uh, A huge part of seminary life here for our students is involving their wives and children in every aspect of, um, of the seminary community, down to wives auditing classes with their husbands, to children being involved in our social gatherings and uh, tending to the ordinary means of grace in the local church and uh, our faculty's promotion and accountability structures to ensure that this happens of family worship in the home as well. Um, Before I came here tonight to conduct this interview, we looked at Psalm 130 around our dinner table for family worship and sang it together to the St. Columba tune. And... um, that I think that's as good a note to end on as any men and women as you're listening to this podcast and you consider your legacy. Do you consider the legacy you're leaving uh, in the lives of your children if you're single or childless in the lives of the young uh, men and women, boys and girls in your church? You know, how are you serving in whatever context the Lord opens up for you? Uh, how, um, how are you ministering to young families? How are you allowing young families to minister to you? Um, you know, these, these kinds of questions are questions that don't make any sense to the world. They don't make any sense at all. I think the closest the world gets is this mindless, emotive call, think of the children, or what about the children, without any real substance or theological import to that, um, even if it might be a reflection of a good impulse that, that you've articulated well for us, drawing from Dabney, drawing from Scripture, um, you know, drawing from the pages of your book, which you've written. Uh, Zach, where can folks get Masculine Christianity, the book? Um, you know, it's published by Zion Press. So where, where can they pick up the book? Where can they purchase it? Where's the best place for them to get it? I mean, the easiest place is to get it on Amazon, uh, but it is available through other sellers. Uh, you should be able to go to a local bookstore even, and they should be able to order it uh, through there because it's available through some other outlets. So I know some people don't always like uh, buying it through Amazon, but uh, that's probably the easiest way. Well, if you're going to use Amazon, make sure to use Amazon Smile and designate Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary as your uh, charity of choice. But I really do encourage you to shop local when possible or to uh, shop through um, uh, Reformation Heritage Books or you know, Westminster Theological Seminary Bookstore if they carry it. Uh, We don't carry it here at Greenville, but perhaps we should. We don't carry a whole lot of new titles unless they're required in class. But this book is well worth your time, folks, and I highly recommend it to you. Zach Garris, thank you for joining me on the podcast. This has been a delightful, even if a bit longer than expected, conversation with you, brother. Uh, Thanks so much for having me. I enjoyed it. Absolutely. 
Thank you for listening to this edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. To help ensure that we can continue to produce content from a Reformed and confessional Presbyterian perspective, please consider making a gift of support in any amount at gpts.edu donate. For more information about Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, please visit gpts.edu.